actually is Job. Teaches us a lot about suffering and trusting in God during those hard times. So may the seeds go deep. If you've got your Bibles with you, please open them to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be, and that's page 532 of the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. Um, if you don't have one, please take that with the one promise that you're actually going to read it. So you can start with the Gospel of John. And we would love to talk with you about that. But as you're turning there to Acts chapter 4, let me ask you this question. Have you ever met someone who just is so different that you want to be like them? Now, the key word is like them, right? Because there are lots of people who are very different and you don't necessarily want to be like them. But who are those people in your life that you look at and you go, wow, man, I really want to be like that person. I want to be like them. And I mean that in an encouraging way, too. There, there is that type of person that you look at them and you watch their lives and, and they show so much love and, and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that you just look at them and you go, wow, I really want to be like that. Maybe they're not doing it perfectly. Actually, I'll take out the word maybe and take out they're not because we never all do it perfectly, but they're striving after that. They're growing in that area. Maybe you think of that person and you just think, wow, God, help me to be more like that. It's here we see two examples in Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5. We'll see two examples of two groups of people, followed by specific examples of how those two p- groups of people are very different. We'll see one good one and one very bad one. But they're two examples, nonetheless, of what a community looks like, a community that looks differently. So follow along with me. We'll be starting in chapter 4, verse 32, going all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. The word of the Lord says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that one of the the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought one, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come together to continue to worship you. This isn't a spectator sport that we're doing right now. We're worshiping. We're worshiping in our listening. We're worshiping as your word is preached. We are continuing to worship you, awesome God. So Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you, May we make much of you. And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. And I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, I just pray that you use this sermon for your glory above all things, for the joy of your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. In Acts 4, verses 32 to 37, we see what it is to be spirit-filled. This is the positive example that we see in the word of the Lord this morning. Here we see the early church giving because they understand how much has been given to them. That's essentially why we do offering. It's an understanding of our, our understanding individually of how much God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. In verse 32, we see right off the bat that everyone is together. Everyone who has believed, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has died for the sins and rose again, everything that the apostles are teaching and preaching in, the, in this chapter are together, who are believing that gospel. There's a unique feature of those who are believing the gospel. They, have, they were of one heart and soul. This is unique. Because you've got to remember who these people are. These are people from different ethnicities, different generations, different everything. And there's probably, at this moment, probably about 20,000 of them. And they all had one heart and one soul together. Have you ever tried to have a family have one soul and one heart together? Let alone 20,000? There's something unique about this group. There's something different about them. This is actually the fulfillment of what God said about his new covenant in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within that I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, he says. This is a working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who are believing. This is the overflow, the outpouring of the spirit filled community. They were convinced of their common identity as members of one family of God. 
So their identity was not, I'm a lawyer, or I'm a teacher, I'm an engineer, or I'm a grocery clerk, or whatever it may be. Their identity was, I am Christ's. And that is what united them together. There's something that we need to see right off the bat, that the gospel brings people together. Because, gospel, because God gathers a people together through the preaching of the gospel. And the amazing thing is that this group that we see here in Acts, they are all sinful people with different types of background. And we see the few chapters ago, a different group, a different people could hear the gospel that was preached in their own little languages of different countries, ethnicities, languages, economic statuses. They're all coming together, and the gospel brings people together. Division happens when we elevate preferences above the gospel. So when we fixate on what we want rather than on who Jesus is, we become more concerned with what we want rather than bringing more, being more like who Jesus is. That's why we see passages like in Ephesians 4, verse 2, that says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, what do they do? They bear with one another in love. We are told to preserve unity because we know from experience that selfishness constantly attempts to overthrow that unity. We fight this walk, we fight this by walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel which looks like humility and gentleness, enduring and loving walk. So selfishness will always be around, right? There's not one of us in this room that doesn't struggle with it. Like if I have to, I remember having little kids and, uh, you know, I'm waking up in the morning and I'm thinking, well, I'm the one that has to go to work. That's called selfishness. I have this prayer that I pray every week for us as a church, and I pray it for myself. It's from Legionnaire Ministries. It says, Father, you are one God in three persons. There is such a loving, happy unity in the Trinity. Make this church, make me to feel this happiness. Cause us to be united in and through the Trinity so that we might be united together as a church in love. I pray we all pray this because this is how the church becomes as one heart and soul. See, the early church had one heart and soul because they sought to walk in the gospel, walk in humility. And th that is enabled, and this enables them to do this next part that is kind of mind-blowing in itself. Not only do they have one heart together and one mind together, one soul together, they gave each other stuff as the word says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Have you ever worked with children? How many times do you hear, that's mine? How many fights have you broken up because one of your kids is like, that's mine? If you worked in the nursery or in the children's ministry or anything, we've all seen it. You've done it. And I use children because it kind of makes us a little bit more, oh, those are kids. Let's be honest, folks. Most of us are adults. How many times have you thought, that's mine? We all struggle with selfishness. 
No one wants to give something up. No one wants to be uncomfortable for the sake of someone else. This isn't natural. But the outcome of the spirit-filled people is that they are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their brother and sister in the church. This would have been reminded to them every time they gathered together because in verse 33 we see that they were preaching the gospel as the apostles reminded them all the time as they gathered together the resurrection of the Lord. Like think about this for a second. How many times have you heard a story from let's say your grandpa or something like that and you're like, Grandpa, I've heard that like a million times. Stop. Every time they gathered, they said the same story because it meant everything. They didn't get sick of the gospel. And as they continued to be a spirit-filled community, this was central in that, as they were preaching the gospel. They were a a spirit-filled community with God's word written on their hearts. As they applied it to their lives, we get to verse 34, which says, there was not a needy person among them. And I want to be clear about something very specific, because especially within my younger generation, there's always like, they always go to this passage to, to argue for some sort of Christian socialism. That's not what this passage is talking about. Or some sort of communism. This is a community. This is a spirit-filled community. This is what a spirit-filled community looks like. I see someone in need. I will give of what I am and what I have to make sure that that person, that brother or sister in the Lord, has everything that they need. This is why we have benevolent offering. Every communion, we say we have a communion, we have a benevolent offering. This month, the benevolent offering is going to be put towards our Christmas hampers. This is why when someone gives a call that I need a help to move a piano or something, we say, yeah, let's do this. Right? If someone needs help moving, we go and help. We give, in that case, of our bodies, sometimes our backs. When someone is, needs a meal or is feeling lonely, we give a, 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 a listening ear. This is the example of a spirit-filled community. So for anyone's reference, this is not a proof text for communism or some sort of socialism. There's actually in this text private ownership that continues. One person put it, if no one had anything, that, what room would there be left among them for men who can give? Martin Lloyd-Jones put it so well in his book, Courageous Christianity, communism imposes an equality. In the early church, there was a voluntary equality and a rejoicing in that. Nothing was done in a spirit of fear because the secret police were watching or you had no choice. It was the exact opposite of some imposed system. Because as we see in verse 35, they voluntarily sold land and houses and would bring the profits of what was sold to the church, to the apostles, and fund those people who had needs. Keep in mind, it's people who had needs, right? So sometimes someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I need this. And I go, well, you don't need that. Right? What, what do you need? Right? I need to pay my cable bill. No, you don't. I don't have cable, so you're not, you don't need cable. 
but these were talking about needs. What amazes me here is this quote by a man named Matt Mathers, Mathers that hit me this week that says, the fruit of the Spirit is a sharp crop. Invest in your church. A shard crop, sorry. And that's, why they were, that's what they were doing. That's really what offering is and giving is. It's an act of worship to the God who has given us what we don't deserve and is an overflow of the generosity we have experienced through Jesus Christ. Giving to your church is a gospel investment, not a club due. As we continue on in verse 36 to 37, we are given a specific example of a man who was spirit-filled in the community. You ever, again, remember my first question that I asked? You ever found that man or that woman who you're just like, I really want to be like that. God, help me to be more like that. For me, one of the examples of generosity that have been in my life since I was born was my father, my dad, who to me is an example of generosity and selflessness. Growing up, we had everything we needed and more. I complained about it regularly because I had Byway shoes. Remember Byway? Yeah, they should bring that back. As a father, now I understand why I had those byway shoes. But we had everything. Everything we needed and more. I wish I had more because I was selfish. But my dad was an example to me of being kingdom-minded with his money, investing it in gospel ministries of his local church, but also in other local churches throughout this world. And I'm thankful for those who I can look to who set an example of being spirit-filled. And Barnabas is here an example of that. They're, they are making a worthwhile legacy. Luke gives us an example here with Barnabas. He sets a good example of a Christian who gives to the needs of others. In fact, he's got a nickname named Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. But his character was so evident within him that they said, nah, your name is not this. Your name is Barnabas. You're an encouragement. You're an encourager. He understood that he was the sinner that deserved one thing, but in God's grace and his mercy, he received another thing because of God's selfless act. I'm reminded of Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, having this, one, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Barnabas had the heart and mind of Christ, and he's the example the outcome of the gospel is to bring people together because each person who is, believes is filled with the Holy Spirit. In order to have what we see here, there has to be a sacrificing of ourselves for others who are behind us or around us because we become kingdom-focused and not self-focused. See, followers of Jesus are called to be selfless and generous and caring and unified because that's the example we've been given through Jesus Christ who did that for me. I didn't deserve it. 
You didn't deserve it. Why did you get it? Well, that's called grace. This is the outcome of a spirit-filled community. When Pastor Matt was preaching on chapter 2, we saw how the Holy Spirit brought a commitment to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and community and prayer. And we saw a unity of mind and heart of the early church. And what amazes me in Acts 2 and here is that when God is present by His Spirit, the outcome of that is unity and mutual care. Everyone is working together, caring for one another. And this is because they are spirit-filled. Galatians 5, to 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which is brought to us individually in our community because we are filled by the Spirit. So notice, true faith brings the Holy Spirit, which means that you will grow in these things. It's not necessarily an option. You're going to grow in this area because this is who you are. You have a new heart that enables you to believe, as Ezekiel says. This first point ends with an example of a spirit-filled community and an individual, and the, the gospel brings people together, and it's awesome, and it's amazing to see what God does in, in a group of people. And it's right here we see Christian community that is manifesting the new heart created by the Spirit. These Christians loved each other deeply. They had a common concern for each other's welfare. And, and not just like spiritually where we're going to think, hey, let me pray for you. But also physically, let me care for you. Because of their new hearts, their heart eyes weren't fixed on themselves, but on Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they could count others more significant than themselves because their ultimate example was Jesus, who died for their sins and rose again. So something that I pray every time I'm prepping for a sermon, as I'm praying, I say this, Lord, please help me to be obedient to the demands of this passage. Help me to enter the pulpit having already submitted my life to these, this truth before I preach it. So I hope that I do that. But my prayer for you is the same. Don't leave this place without that. Because the other option isn't really pretty. As we see in Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, we see what it is to not be spirit-filled. Right here, we see how sin comes into the church and how God deals with it. We see what it means to not be spirit-filled. Chapter 4 ends with this amazingly stark contrast between a man named Barnabas, and chapter 5 starts with this wonderful three-letter word called but with Ananias and Sapphira. But, verse 1 says, and sometimes the most important words are the small ones, so you've got to pay attention you got to read it over and over again. When we're reading God's Word, we read over that passage. Whatever passage you want to study or, or want to do, you, you, you keep reading it, and you keep marking observations, and it's like a rag or, or, or washcloth or whatever, and you want to wring all that water out. You just keep going back. You keep making new observations. But we are introduced with an 
with a community and an individual who are exemplifying what it means to be spirit-filled. And then we get this one simple word that creates this contrast between two groups of people. So it's important to look at both examples. It's important to read what is happening with these two people in the context of what we see in Acts 4, verse 32, which says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were, was his own, but they had everything in common. See, this community is living proof of a spirit fill, filling that was promised through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is indwelling his people because of, of, because of what God has done. And the outcome of that is unity with one another, voluntarily sharing what they have, devoting to prayer together, and committing to the apostles. So now, right here from the start of this chapter, we see something very different than Barnabas. And what kind of example are they giving? Well, verse 2 comes and says that they had a piece of land that they wanted to sell. But they wanted to keep a little bit to themselves. The language of the text actually implies that there was probably a, a pre-agreement. Hey, we're going to give, it probably went more like this. Ananias and Sapphira went to the apostles and said, hey, I'm going to sell, we're going to sell this land and we're going to give it all to you. All the proceeds we're going to give to you. But we know that that's not what happened. They knowingly did what? Withheld. So they sell this land, and they come to the Peter, and they lay this, land, this, this money at his feet. And Ananias and Sapphira probably had that understanding already. And then right there immediately, as, as Ananias comes and, and lays that, f- that money at Peter's feet, Peter probably looks at him straight in the eyes with probably great amounts of compassion and sorrow and says, Ananias, in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is a question that exposes the heart of the problem. Rather than being filled with the fruit of the Spirit, the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira were filled by Satan with deceit and hypocrisy. And just as the Holy Spirit filled the community for witness, as we saw in in verse 41 of chapter 4, Satan fills the hearts of these two people. As one person said it this way, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without which he tried and will continue to try. His second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. The evil one is regarded as the ultimate cause of this attack on the unity and holiness of the church, but Ananias is clearly responsible for his actions. So Ananias lied to Peter and to the church, but with this sin against, but this is not sin against man, it's sin against the Holy Spirit's who is the one who creates and fills and sustains the church. So they keep it back. They keep some money back. And the language here is actually kind of like embezzling. Like a Conrad Black situation. If those who remember him. I feel like I'm starting to get old in my illustrations. 
This is the same word that is used in the Greek in the Old Testament to describe Achan. You remember who Achan was, who was in Joshua, verse 7, who took some of the devoted things and kept them for himself. This is another example of God's wrath being ignited. And the word is also used one other time in the New Testament where it is translated as pilfering. When Paul talks about the character of people to Titus, Ananias and Sapphira had probably some sort of understanding before this about what the sale and all that money was going to be done with all that money. And the judgment was not because Ananias had not given the whole proceedings. Please see that. Peter is very clear. Was this not, and he asked a series of questions. Was this not your land? Yes. Was this not your money? Yes. Could you not have done whatever you wanted with it? Yes. Then why in the world are you lying? Because his heart was more focused on himself. What is the only other outcome with this? Well, it's prestige, is it not? Oh, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold their land and they gave all of that money to the church. Whew, good on you guys. But Ananias and Sapphira probably had their eyes on a new cloak. There's nothing wrong with keeping your, some of the money that you've been blessed with to do whatever you want with. The issue is lying. And that the lie causes disunity within the church. He effectively lied to the Holy Spirit, it says. But also, they were more concerned with themselves than their brothers and their sisters. Their actions were causing disunity, not unity. So verse 4 comes and he asks them all those questions. Why are you lying? Why did you do these things? But you chose to lie against God more than that, Ananias. You robbed God. As Malachi 3, 8 says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have I robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? Giving or offering is an act of worship, just as much as it was supposed to be for them. But in Ananias and Sapphira, they were more concerned with their own glory than God's. They were more concerned about themselves rather than others. They were, they were in it for what they could get out of the situation, not what they could give. And there were an example of not being spirit-filled. But do you see how God looks right into the hearts with like this piercing laser focus? Peter had no way of knowing what was going on. But God knows everything. He knows everything. And the thing that mind blows me about all of this is that God knows everything, every, everything that you even don't know that you sinned. Everything about you. That malicious thought that you just thought knows. That gossip that you think you told in secret to that person knows. He knows it all yet he still chooses to save us. So Peter comes and he goes, he says, you have not lied to man but to God, and this is a great example of something that's important. The Holy Spirit is a deity. He is God. He is a divine person whose patience is being provoked. So he's not like Star Wars, like a force of some kind. He's not sort of entity or, I don't know, something 
He is a person. And lying is a characteristic of Satan and is the exact opposite of God's character who can't lie. It's also the opposite of the character of what God's people are called to be. So as Peter says these things, immediately in verse 5 it says, he fell down and breathed his last. See, Jesus takes purity of his church incredibly serious. We see that even in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 30, which, uh, which my brother Dave pre, uh, read a little bit of already. But right before it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But Jesus, more often than not, thankfully, keeps the church purity through an orderly process of church discipline, which can lead, if only necessary, to excommunication. See, there's nothing that destroys evangelism more than the duplicity and hypocrisy of the messenger. Do you understand that? The world's only knowledge of Jesus Christ is what it sees in the lives of Christians. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. But when we come to a situation and say, I am perfect, or act like I'm perfect, or holier than thou, or whatever it is, it makes us to be hypocrites. But the outcome of that is great fear. God shows his presence, and fear is the response. And this is a, a reverent awe and a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline. This is how people should react when they encounter God's awesome purity and perfection. Hebrews 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the more I understand God's holiness, this is for me, the more that I'm understanding God's holiness and my sin, and what God did for me in rescuing me from my sin, the more worshipful I become, the more generous, the more forgiving, the more gentle, the more kind. Because in our natural state, we can't approach God. But God makes a way through Jesus Christ, His Son, giving us a new heart that enables us to believe in the gospel and resting in what God provides God provided a way for us to be made right before him because we are the sinners and we all are deserving of hell. But God in his mercy didn't, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by, becoming, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, the form of, uh, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death to the cross. When we repent and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again and be saved, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. That not only should we fear God, but also on the same side, because of what Christ has done for us, there's a tension that is created that means that I have been adopted as a son of him. And I can cry out to a holy God with boldness and say, Abba, Father. So they buried Ananias and his wife comes in a few, few hours later. And Peter asks a very pointed question in verse 8 to, to Sapphira. He says, tell me, 
whether you sold the land for so much. And she had the opportunity to come clean. Her lies clearly tell us that the couple meant to lie to Peter and to the rest of the community. So do you see the contrast that is being created between them and Barnabas? Instead of prayer and praise to God, the couple engages in lies. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, they're filled with Satan. There's a lot more than just a telling of a lie that's happening here. They are showing the state of their hearts. Instead of the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruits of the flesh. This couple is like Judas who was deceived by Satan and rebellion against against God, and just like Judas, Ananias and Sapphira met with a holy justice. It's this sin that points to their unbelief. Because together, as verse 9 says, they agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord, which is just another proof of the Holy Spirit's deity. And the judgment is immediate as she falls to the ground and breathes her last. And again, the outcome of this act of God is great fear. See, the fear actually comes from the church too. There is a renewed sense of awe and reverence of who God is. The church gets in a dangerous place when when we forget that God is holy. And God is holy. And he will deal with things. But the immediate outcome is the same for her, as her husband, and she falls to the ground. And the Holy Spirit does two things within the Christian community. He brings amazing joy to those who are humble and repentant. We will see that in Acts 13, verse 52. But he is dangerous to those who would rather have lies over transparency and truth. And this is for the whole church. This fear comes to the whole church. This is groups that God has gathered to himself through the preaching of the gospel as the community saved by Jesus for entrance into his eternal kingdom. And all who heard these things had not just, not just in the church, but those outside the church heard these things had fear. In fact, that fear made them a little reluctant to join. One of the things that comes out of this narrative is that God takes sin seriously. Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of making a promise to the Holy Spirit and breaking it because they wanted reputation in the church. The sin, the sin was a sin of hypocrisy. And what they were claiming to believe didn't come out in their lives. It was a phony Christian lifestyle that didn't line up with their professed life. See, God takes sin seriously. So should you. So does this make you tremble? It really should. It's a call to us to be serious about our faith. We need to walk before God in godly fear all of our lives because we are different. God removes the distrust and the disunity that was caused by this couple's dishonesty. This is a unique time when the Holy Spirit was especially among the young church, and he works to bless the community in a unity of fellowship and powerful communities, but still think that God takes this seriously. And why would he take unity so seriously? Because it's part of our witness. Because John 17, Jesus prayed that the church would be united as the Father and him are. 
Because Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21 points out that the fruits of the flesh are sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is causing hostility, strife, which is causing conflict, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, which is causing disagreements, division, causing, well, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, our assurance is confirmed in the course of our obedience, as one person said. The line that separates assurance and presumption is razor thin, and we are prone to cross it with ease. But there's tension here, which I love. Because if I were just to preach about all the condemnation, it would just be depressing. Faith is what saves us, not works. Our works are a result of a saving faith. And God in his grace saves an undeserving people that can sing with humility and broken and boldness this wonderful song by Matt Papa. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. A believing people doesn't take God's grace for granted, but heavily leans into it. But don't forget that God sees the heart, and he hates sin. And he is concerned about the purity of the church. As Jesus told the compromising church in Revelation 2, verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. See, the outcome of God, so what, we may ask? The outcome of God drawing a people to himself through the preaching of the gospel is a spirit-filled community and persons who are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. The first thing, the fruit of our lives shows the state of our hearts. But there is a clear picture of what happens to those who aren't filled with the Spirit. Because Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I am really thankful that God doesn't immediately judge all of our sins. Because I'm sure many of us, all of us, wouldn't make it here today. But sin will be dealt with. And the consequences of sin without Jesus' atonement is death. So I want you to think about how serious God takes sin. Jesus didn't choose to die the horrific death of the Roman cross because our sin didn't mean much. Our sin was great. And the great news of the gospel is that Jesus chose to die for us because his love for us was greater. A spirit-filled community in person or growing in the fruits of the spirits growing in our understanding of the gospel the second thing is this that the working of the holy spirit is a community in the community individuals within the community that consider others more significant than ourselves because that's exactly what jesus did for us i think of this uh, pastor named ray pritchard who said it this way when the holy spirit fills us things will change Kindness will replace rudeness. Forgiveness will replace bitterness. Gentleness will replace harshness. 
Generosity will replace selfishness. Lord, make this true of us today. Jesus is our ultimate example, as we saw in Philippians 2, 3 to 8. A spirit-filled community and persons are growing in the fruit of the spirit, being more like Jesus. The third thing that comes out is that God continues to build his church. What does Satan try to do? He's tried to destroy it from the outside. He's tried to destroy it from the inside. Yet his church continues. God has and continues to gather to himself through the preaching of the gospel, a community saved by Jesus for entrance into his eternal kingdom. And God uses a church that is growing in the fruit of the Spirit to be on his mission to bring his message to the families across the street, to the families across the world. God will protect his church from enemies from within and enemies without. A spirit-filled community and persons are growing in the fruit of the spirits, growing in our witness to the message of Jesus. So let's make this agreement together. How about we pray together that we would be spirit-filled as a church, as individuals, as a community. Maybe the outcome of that would be kindness being re- replacing rudeness. Forgiveness replacing bitterness. Gentleness replacing harshness. Generosity replacing selfishness. And let us pray that the Lord will make this true of us today. We will be a brighter witness to the message of Jesus if that happens. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, you are one God in three persons. There is such love, such loving and happy unity in the Trinity. So Lord, I pray that you would make me, make this church to feel this happiness. Cause us to be united in and through the Trinity so that we might be united together as a church in love. When the Holy Spirit fills us, things will change. Kindness will replace rudeness. Forgiveness will replace bitterness. Gentleness will replace harshness. Generosity will replace selfishness. Lord, make this true of us today. Amen.